Church, let's just take our Bibles together if we could. And I want to do something a little bit different as we start. Oh, thank you. Is that better? <laughs> I would like for us to look at a passage other than the one that Tom just read. We'll get to Romans 9 in just a second. But I want to start by uh, quoting Jesus to start this sermon. That's usually a good place to start a sermon, don't you think? Quoting Jesus. So turn with me to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. And in verse 14, Jesus makes this great statement. He says, I am the good shepherd. Isn't that good? Aren't you glad Jesus is our great shepherd? And you might remember, because we studied John not that long ago, John has these great I am statements throughout his gospel. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, etc., etc. And one of those I am statements is John 10, verse 14, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And then Jesus goes on to say, I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And then Jesus says this. Look at verse 16. This is important. Jesus says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Hmm, what if, what's Jesus talking about there? And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And the question is, who are those other sheep from the other fold? Do you know, Harvest Decatur? This is pretty exciting for us because this is one of those instances in the Bible where you can look at it and say, hey, that's us. He's talking about us. And even as you're reading this at night with your kids, make sure you say, hey, kids, listen up. Jesus is talking about us. We're the sheep from the other fold. We aren't of Jesus' initial fold. I hope you understand that. That is the Jews of Israel, the initial fold. We are the sheep from another fold, but God brings us in, those who listen to his voice, because red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Might be a good time to sing that with your kids after you read a passage like this. The book of Revelation speaks of a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from every tribe, from peoples and all peoples and languages, standing before the throne and worshiping Jesus. God loves diversity, folks. Jews and Gentiles, both. Multitudes from every people, tribe, and nation and language. And Jesus brings them in. And then Jesus says this in verse 16. So there will be one flock, many folds, one flock. One shepherd, one church, one heaven, one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God will take sheep from many folds and he will make them one flock with one shepherd, the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. Okay, now, now you can turn in Romans to, ch to chapter 9 to the passage that was just read. Because we see a parallel text here where Paul references the same exact thing as Jesus does in John 10. Paul says, if you look at Romans chapter 9, verse 25, those who are not my people, I will call my people. Who's he talking about there? Again, he's talking about us. Those Gentiles that Jesus alludes to. Those sheep from another fold will be called sons of the living God, verse 26. And, what, and what's fascinating here, as we read this passage, as we study Romans 9, 
is that these ideas that are being conveyed, they didn't originate with Paul. They didn't even originate with Jesus' words after his incarnation. Paul actually references a prophet, the prophet Hosea, that, that came 700 years before Christ came. He also quotes the prophet Isaiah 700 years before Christ alluded to these things that Gentiles will actually come in to the kingdom of God. I think this dates back even farther than that to the book of Genesis when God said to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. It dates back even farther than that to the foundation of the world when we were chosen according to Ephesians 1. Here's the point of Romans 9. Verses 19 through 29. God didn't have to rescue poor and lowly Gentiles like you and me. He didn't have to. He didn't have to show us grace, but he did. And we, we are grateful for that. And we praise him for that. That's the main point of Romans 9, 19 through 29. The title of our message today is Other Sheep Not of This Fold. And I want to give you this morning just three displays of God's mercy to us, sinful and lowly Gentiles that we are. We may have, and, and I don't want to assume everybody in here is Gentile. I, you know, we may have a few who are watching right now online, maybe in our congregation that have Jewish blood. You know, according to 23andMe, I don't know if they can be trusted, but according to 23andMe, actually my wife and my son both have fractional percentages of Jewish blood. I kind of envy them that. I'm fully blooded Gentile. And there might be some of you right now watching who have more than just a fractional percentage of Jewish blood. Maybe, maybe both your parents are Jewish and you come from a long Jewish line. But for most of us in this room, we're Gentiles. And I'm going to preach from that vantage point. I'm going to exposit Romans 9 from that vantage point. And the first thing that I want to say is this. You can write this down in your notes. God is free to choose and save whomever he wills. Jews or Gentiles or both. God is free. God is free to save whomever he wills, to choose and to save whomever he wills. Paul says this in verse 19. He says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Why does God still find fault? For who can resist God's will? Now, We've seen this already. Paul is having this kind of imaginary conversation with this interlocutor who's asking questions. And Paul is imagining now that he's asking this question about God's sovereignty. Paul has dealt with God's sovereignty already in Romans chapter 9. He said that God is sovereign. Paul said in Romans 9 that God elects those who are going to be saved. Paul said already that he has, God has chosen Jacob and he has not chosen Esau. He has chosen Isaac. He has not chosen Israel. Ishmael, God, God is free to do that. And the interlocutor says, injustice. That's not fair. Paul says, no, God is free to do whatever he pleases to do. God will have mercy on whomever he wants to have mercy. He wills to have mercy. And then Paul brings forth this example. We looked at this last week of Pharaoh in the Old Testament. Is it okay for God to raise up Pharaoh in order to put him down as a show of power? Is God free to show his power in this way? Paul says, yes, he is. Paul says in verse 18 that God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So now there's this new objection in verse 19. You will say to me then, says Paul, why does he still find fault? 
for who can resist his will. In other words, how can God hold us responsible if he is sovereign over us? Who can resist God's will? I mean, I think this question, this imaginary interlocutor that Paul's kind of dialoguing with, I mean, I don't think it's strictly hypothetical. I think Paul actually had arguments like this with people. As he was trying to defend the doctrine of God's sovereignty and the doctrine of election, people would ask these kinds of questions. And now, as Paul puts forth this question, he gives an answer to that question, probably the most pointed answer, the most pointed statement in the whole book of Romans. Look at verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? And that's intense, isn't it? I mean, this is Paul saying, watch it now. Be careful who you're dealing with. This is Paul singing, Mr. Big Stuff, who do you think you are? This is Paul saying, watch yourself now. Oh, man, who are you to talk to God like that? Well, what is molded, look at verse 20. Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Now, I want to clarify here. I don't think these are the honest questions of a, of a seeker. I don't think this is somebody who's really trying to search out the deep things of God and trying to reconcile, you know, human responsibility with God's sovereignty. How does that come together? What we have here is the voice of an accuser. We have the voice of a skeptic skeptic saying before God, that's not fair. Not fair. If we can't resist God's will, how can God hold us responsible for that? By the way, when Paul says here, who are you, O man, to answer back to God, that Greek word for answer back, this is part of the reason that I know this is coming from a skeptic. This is the Greek word onatopokrinomai, and it indicates an, imp- an improper contentiousness. This is, this is somebody with a contentious spirit. The, the Greek has the connotation of, of reproach or criticize back. So Paul is essentially saying, who are you, O man, to criticize your maker? Who are you, O man, to to reproach God? Paul is dealing with the the voice of a malcontent, saying, how dare you do this, God? What gives you the right to do this? And Paul says, watch it now. (laughs) Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Created things don't talk back to their creator. Created things don't talk back to the maker. They don't reproach the maker. I'll just give you an example of this, and maybe some of you have dealt with something similar to this. Warren Wiersbe tells a story of this man he tried to witness to in Chicago, and, you know, he was passing out tracts, and and most of the people, as he was doing this, as he was evangelizing, most of the people graciously accepted the tracts, but one man took the tract and with a snarl crumpled it up and threw it in the gutter. The name of the tract was Four Things God Wants You to Know. And he said to Wearsby, there are a few things I would like God to know. Why is there so much sorrow and tragedy in this world? Why do the innocent suffer while the rich go free? Bah! Don't tell me there's a God. If there is, then God is the biggest sinner that ever lived. And he turned away with a sneer, and he was lost in the crowd. That is the kind of person that Paul is dealing with here. He's dealing not with an honest, respectful inquirer, He's dealing with a cynic. He's dealing with a mocker. He's dealing with a reviler. 
somebody who would who would you know sit at the court and judge God from their vantage point. R. Kent Hughes, he says this about this kind of mentality in his commentary on Romans. He says, tiny man whose life is just a breath, whose history proves over and over that despite all his learning and technological triumphs, he repeatedly makes colossal errors and falls into unspeakable barbarisms. That's a good description of human history right there. This puny man stands before the God who knows the end from the beginning, who has never learned anything because he knows everything, who is the perfection of wisdom and love, and he talks back to him. He reproaches God. Hugh says, how absurd. How absurd that man would do that. And Paul's point in all this is that God is free. God is free as humanity's maker to choose and to save whoever he wills. God is free to take from the same lump of sinful clay and make some for honorable use and make some for dishonorable use. Now, I'll be honest, okay, it's pastoral confession time. You might ask me, have you ever questioned God, Pastor Tony? Have you ever done something like this? I admit I have sometimes been the clay pot that talks back to the potter. I have. I have sometimes insolently questioned God's purposes in our world. It's only by God's grace that he didn't rain down fireballs from heaven and consume me. That's what I deserved in those moments, even before that happened. And I've asked myself, even reading and, and thinking through this this last week, is it okay to ask God questions, to, to search out the deep things of God and to inquire of him? Here's my answer to that. If you're wondering, I think, yes, it is. I think it is okay. If we do it with the right attitude, not as a reviler, not as a skeptic, but as somebody genuinely seeking the activities of God, and we always need to keep in mind, always, as worshipful inquirers and be, be, and be cognizant of the fact that, that our puny little brains won't always understand God's infinite purposes, especially when it comes to things like sovereignty and election. We have to admit that before the Lord. Like I said, I've had my, you know, what gives you the right moments with the Lord? I'm not proud of that. I'm just trying to be honest. But I've also had my moments before the Lord, maybe you have too, reading Romans 9 where I like, I'm asking the Lord, Lord, I don't understand this. <laughs> How does this come together, human responsibility and divine sovereignty? How do I make sense of this? How does this harmonize in your grand plan of redemption? And I've explored that and I can't say that I've solved that mystery don't hold your breath for me to solve that mystery no matter what I, I always get to the place where I say Lord I can't figure this out I don't know how you do this but I love you and I trust you and, and I'm going to leave these mysteries to you ultimately because I'm a created being. I am a clay pot who has no right to accuse or reproach the potter. And God is free to choose and save whomever he wills. Now look at verse 22 with me. This is 
This is the closest that Paul gets in this passage to explaining God's sovereign purpose and election. Paul says this in verse 22. He says, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, think Pharaoh in the Old Testament, think the priest of Baal before Elijah in the Old Testament, think Noah in the flood, think Sodom and Gomorrah. What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that God could have destroyed people in the Old Testament instantaneously. God could have ended the program at Adam and Eve when they fell, just sent them to hell and just end the whole project. God could have destroyed Noah and all of his family at the flood if he wanted to. God could have destroyed the Old Testament Israelites because of their sin and never sent Jesus to save us. God could have done that. But in his mercy, God has put up with human sinfulness for thousands of years in order that some might be saved to his glory. God has tolerated and endured with patience vessels of wrath so that he might make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's God's long suffering that leads us to repentance. It's God's patience even that leads vessels of wrath to become vessels of mercy and to that you might say do you have an example of that pastor tony can you kind of flesh that out for me a little bit more can you give me an instance of where this took place god waiting waiting enduring being long-suffering in order that some might become vessels of mercy yes i can paul gives it to us in verse 24 paul says even us whom he has called not from the jews only but also from the Gentiles. In other words, the best example of vessels of wrath becoming vessels of mercy is what God has done with the church. It's God in the fullness of time sending his son Jesus Christ to die for us, calling Jews and Gentiles both into salvation, into the church. I, I know this is hard for us to grasp as Westerners. I know this is hard for us to grasp as Americans, but the point of Romans 9 is that if God was fair with us, then we would all die a horrible death and be sent to, to hell. That's the point of Romans 9. The point of Romans 9 is that none of us deserve mercy. God is free to do whatever he wants. And if God was just without mercy, all of us would be lost. But because God is both just and merciful, he has patiently made a way for some of us to be saved. Even some of us lowly Gentiles. Here's the second point from the message. God is free to choose and save whomever he wills. Secondly, God is patiently holding back his wrath in order to show mercy to some. God is patient with his wrath. I don't know when his judgment's going to rain down. I'm just glad it's not right now because I got people I want to see get saved. By the way, I love how Paul says us in verse 24. Did everybody see that? Even us. I love it when Paul puts me in the same category with him. I'm like, oh, yeah. Thank you, Paul. Yeah, I'm with, I'm with Paul. <laughs> Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. You know, the, the church, in other words. 
The Christians throughout the world and throughout time were gathered from both Jews and Gentiles, from the four corners of the world, and that still continues even today. I love that. And Paul says we are called. That's the Greek word kaleo. Paul knows that he didn't get saved because he was so much more brilliant than all the other Jews of his day. Because he was on the road to Damascus to kill some Christians, and then God showed up supernaturally and said, no, you're not doing that anymore, Paul. You're on my side now. That's how Paul got saved. He was called. Did God have to do that with Paul? No. Could, could God have saved Herod Agrippa instead of Paul? Absolutely he could have. We could be reading right now the book of Romans written by King Herod Agrippa. And instead of Paul being saved, King Herod got saved. And Paul was the one that died and got eaten by worms in the book of Acts. Could that have happened? Absolutely that could have happened. And Paul's point here is that God patiently endures the sinfulness of vessels of wrath in order to draw to himself vessels of mercy. Don't you think that Paul was glad that God didn't rain down his wrath upon the world the day before his road to Damascus experience? That would have been bad timing for Paul. Thank you for waiting. Lord, aren't you glad that God waited? I'll just tell you for myself, I'm glad that God didn't bring judgment in 1983 because the timing wasn't right yet for me. Some of you might say, I'm glad that God waited until 1995, 2015, 2019, 2020. Aren't you glad now that God waited and didn't judge you in your sin before you got saved? That would have been bad timing for you. And for the record, I said this already, but let me just say, I don't know when the final judgment's going to come. I don't, know when it's, I don't know when Jesus is coming back. If I told you I did know when Jesus was coming back, you shouldn't come to this church anymore. Because Jesus said no one knows the hour of the day of his coming. So I don't know. It could be today. It could be this afternoon. And for the record, every day that God delays bringing his judgment is a show of mercy to us. Every day that God tarries is mercy. Because people need to hear the gospel. People need to get saved. I know people that I want to see move from a vessel of wrath to a vessel of mercy. I'm praying for them. And by the way, there are only two categories that Paul gives us here. I, I've said this before. I just feel like I need to keep saying this. There's, there's only two categories in the Bible. There's the vessel of wrath and then there's the vessel of mercy. There's the unbeliever and there's the believer. Okay? And there's no... There's no third vessel. I'm a third vessel, Pastor Tony. I'm a, I'm a hidden vessel. No, you're not. You're either a recipient of God's grace, God's mercy, or you're a recipient of God's wrath. Those are the options that Paul puts forward. And, and I don't know. I mean, we have some guests here today. We have some people maybe watching online that don't normally watch online. Maybe today is a day for you to move from a vessel of God's wrath to a vessel of God's mercy. By putting your faith in Christ. You might say, I don't know if I'm elected, Pastor Tony. I don't know if I've been elected. I don't know either. All I know is this. The Bible says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you shall be saved. That's what I know. And maybe somebody right now needs to make that move from vessels of wrath to vessels of God's mercy. If that's you, then put your faith in Christ and do that today. Don't wait, because I don't know when judgment's coming. 
I don't know, but it could be today. Let's look together at verse 25. In this last section of this passage, Paul's going to quote the Old Testament repeatedly. You know, whenever Paul wants to really clench an argument, whenever Paul really wants to seal the deal with something he's arguing, what does he do? He quotes the Old Testament. He goes to the Bible, his scriptures, and that's what he does here. In fact, and this is not a new thing for Paul. He quotes or alludes to the Old Testament something like, 189 times in the book of Romans. So here's a few of those instances in verses 25 through 29. And what, what Paul is going to argue here is that God's patience in the matter of dealing with vessels of wrath, God's patience was actually something that was prophesied 700 years before Christ even came by the prophet Hosea. So Paul says this in verse 25. Paul says, as indeed he says, that's God speaking through the prophet Hosea, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. Now, just a little background here. Hosea was a prophet in the Old Testament, and he was married to a woman named Gomer, who was an unfaithful woman. And Gomer got pregnant and had a child who was probably not Hosea's child. So the name of that child was Lo-Ami, not my people. That's not my child. And what God tells Hosea to do is go redeem Gomer, make her your wife again, adopt that child, she's going to be yours. And this whole enacted parable, which was very real for Hosea, was meant to illustrate something, that Israel had been unfaithful. Israel had become not my people. Lo, a me. And God's saying, lo, a me is going to become a me. Not my people is going to become my people. Those who were not loved, that didn't have God's affection, not my beloved, not the object of my affection, lo, rahamah, would become his beloved. And all of that points forward to this time and the future when this group of people let's just call them us, these Gentiles, who were, according to God, not my people, not the Israelites, not the Jews of the Old Testament, those low of me, not my people, you become my people. You are my people now. Not beloved. We are the pagans. We are from pagan ancestries. I could prove it to you if you spend some time with me. My pagan ancestors came from the Celts in Scotland and Ireland. They were Druids and they worshipped other gods. Why should I get saved? I'm not Jewish. God says, not my people will become my people. Loa me becomes a me. And what Paul's saying here is that, that Gentiles, those who are ethnically not God's people, God in his mercy is making them his people. He's taking them who are not beloved and making them into his beloved. God doesn't have to do this. You get that, don't you? God doesn't have to do this. But in his mercy, he does it. And this is reinforced in verse 26. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living 
God. Now, the Israelites, they were often referred to as the children of God. Hosea 11, verse 1 talks about this. Out of Egypt, I will call my son. But Hosea also says in chapter 1, verse 10, and the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it should be said, children of the living God. In other words, here's the point here. God takes outsiders. God takes losers. God takes sinners. God takes immoral people, not my people, and he makes them my people. And I, I think, you know, as Gentiles, most of us, Gentiles, we just need to come clean about it. We just need to realize this. Why should we be saved? This should work right into our gratitude, right into our worship. Why should we be saved? Why should God be gracious to us? I mean, the whole plan of salvation in the Old Testament revolved around the sons of Abraham, the Jewish people, and the Jewish nation. I mean, some people were saved outside of the Jewish nation. I think about people like Ruth the Moabitess, and I think about people like Rahab and Uriah the Hittite. Those were outside of the Jewish people. They were not ethnically Jewish, but they got saved by coming into the kingdom of God in the Israelite nation. That's the way salvation worked even all the way up until the time of Jesus, until that whole thing got reversed and we started going out instead of bringing in. But, but the reality is that Jesus was Jewish. All of his disciples were Jewish. Most of Jesus' converts were Jewish. And when they weren't, it was, it was this massive anomaly. You know, when the Syrophoenician woman puts her faith in Christ, everybody's shocked. You know, when the, when the centurion has great faith in Jesus, everybody's shocked. It's a shocking anomaly in the Bible. What's this non-Jew doing getting saved? Even when the Magi come to see Jesus born, That whole thing, and and Matthew means it to be this way, is shocking to a Jewish reader. These pagan Gentiles are watching the Messiah being born? No, how can that be? All of this is a shocking anomaly. Still, despite that, the first converts to Christianity were predominantly Jewish. The men and women at Pentecost were Jewish. Peter and Paul and most of the evangelists in the book of Acts were Jewish. All the writers of scripture, except maybe Luke, were Jewish. So here's the question you gotta ask, and here's where the gratitude comes in. Why should we, a group of pagan Gentiles in Decatur, Illinois, why should we be welcomed into the kingdom of God as children of God? Why? The question isn't, Why doesn't God allow everyone to be saved? The question is, why does God allow anyone to be saved? None of us deserve it. And the answer to that question is that God is merciful. And God is patiently holding back his wrath, his wrath that we rightly deserve in order to show mercy to some. And here's the third point from our message today. What Paul is saying here, and this has been going on for 2,000 years, by the way, is that God is expanding his kingdom to include Gentiles. God is expanding his kingdom to include Gentiles. Jesus said what now? What did Jesus say? John 10, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And Jesus said, I have other sheep, not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. 
I'm a sheep of Jesus from another fold. Bah! I am proud to be a sheep of Jesus. I just want to be a sheep. And with reference to the original fold of the Jewish people, Paul says this. Paul doesn't quote from Hosea now as he talks about the Jews. He quotes from another great prophet of the Old Testament, Isaiah. And I'll be honest, as we finish up this passage, verse 27 through 29, it's kind of sad. It really is. Look at verse 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea. Remember God's promise to Abraham? Only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah, destroyed, wiped off of the face of the earth. Like I said, this is kind of a sad quote. And I hate to, I hate to close a message with a sad quote like this because it's been a great day. It's been a great day. We had baby dedication. I love baby dedication. We've had such a good time of worship. And this is a good passage to study, but this, this is sad. What Paul is saying here is that God will only preserve a remnant, a small sample of the Israelite people. And that's something that actually Isaiah prophesied in the Old Testament, that took place in the Old Testament, and will continue on into our own day. You know, God only preserved a remnant after the Assyrian captivity in 722 B.C. God only preserved a remnant after the Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C. Paul, what Paul's doing here in these last few verses is he's, he's answering two great objections to the gospel. Paul is, is answering these two great critiques of God's plan of salvation. Here are the critiques. Why are there so many Gentiles that are getting saved? Why is God doing that? And then why are there so f- few Jews entering into the kingdom? That's what Paul is dealing with here. Why are there so many Gentiles being saved? Because God wants it that way. And God even foreshadowed that reality in the Old Testament, prophesied about sheep not of his fold that will come into the kingdom. The answer to the second question, why are there so few Jews saved, is, is sad. I mean, you might even ask me that question. You're like, Tony, why, why are there so few Jews that are saved, even in our day? You know, why are there so few Jews in our church? If Jesus was Jewish and you keep telling us that he was, If all of his converts initially were Jewish, if all the scripture writers were Jewish, why are there so few Jews saved in our day? Why is the modern day nation of Israel so secular and in many ways hostile to Christianity? Why is our church full of Gentiles? Why are there so few Jews in America that embrace Christ? The answer is kind of sad. The answer is that God predicted it that way. Isaiah said that would be the case. And now you know, you can read this passage on the screen. Here's another quote from Jesus. Now you know why Jesus wept when he came to Jerusalem. And he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together 
as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. And I think that helps us make sense, too, of why Paul says at the beginning of Romans 9, why he's so anguished in his soul. And he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, it is kind of sad what, what's being said here, but let me just give you some hope, okay? Here's the hope. There's a, there's a kernel of hope built into what Paul is saying here, and the kernel is this. God still has his remnant. God still has his remnant of faithful people. Look at verse 27 again. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. God still has, even today, a believing remnant of Jewish Christ followers. And I believe, just for the record, I believe that that remnant will grow as we get closer and closer to final judgment. More on that when we get to Romans 11 and talk about that. But even today, God has his remnant. And here's the parallel for us, because I know you're saying it right now, Pastor Tony, we're not Jewish. What does that have to do with us? This is a parallel for you, okay? Because some of you right now, because I've heard you say this, you're like, Pastor Tony, have you seen what's going on in our country? Do you see what's happening? Do you know how far we have drifted from the, the faith of our forefathers? Do you know how bad it is? Do you know how hard it is to be a Christian today, Pastor Tony? Yes. And God still has his remnant. And God is still working in our country. Do you know how bad it's getting, Pastor Tony? Do you know how hard it is to be a Christian? Do you know what our world is doing right now to Christians? God still has his remnant. You know what? I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, and I work for a nonprofit organization. <laughs> I don't know what the future holds, but it might get worse. And you know what? Maybe our kids, the two that were dedicated this morning, are going to grow up in a worse world than what we grew up in. God will still do what God wants to get done, and God will, will help the remnant to withstand whatever this world throws at them. And there will be a remnant, and I pray that Harvest Decatur is this kind of place, that will not cower to the world or jettison the faith. I'm praying towards that end and asking God to do that in our church. Join me in praying that, would you? Let me close with this. This is kind of a heavy message, so let me close on a lighter note, a, hope of in, a note of hope and inspiration. Tonight at approximately 7 p.m., do y'all know what happens tonight at 7 p.m.? My favorite left-handed pitcher will take the mound in the World Series. <laughs> Clayton Kershaw. And for the record, let me just say, you can trust me on this, left-handed pitchers are better than right-handed pitchers, always. Always. It's a baseball fact, okay? You heard it here. And if you know anything about Clayton Kershaw, 
Some of you don't know anything I know, but just hear me for a second. If you do know about him, you know that he has never won the big one. He's never won the World Series. He's got this great career. He's done all these amazing things, but he hasn't won the World Series. And he has a chance to help win the World Series tonight. If the Dodgers hadn't screwed up last night, he could have actually won the World Series tonight, but he can't. There's a few more games, but he can help with that. And so I'll, I'll be watching that tonight, and I'll be rooting for him. But let me tell you right now, the reason that Clayton Kershaw is my favorite pitcher is not because he's left-handed, and it's not because he plays for the L.A. Dodgers. To be quite honest, I don't like the Dodgers. But I like Kershaw because he said this. He said, my faith in Christ is the foundation of everything. So I think success, failure, being injured, being healthy, different things, it can kind of be a roller coaster if you don't have that foundation. I think having Christ at the center and then realizing that baseball is just a game and then realizing that you didn't do anything to deserve the ability to throw a baseball it was just a complete gift. Nothing I did to deserve that. It was just from God. Look, I don't know who God elected in this world. I, I don't need to know. I don't know how God's work of, act, of election actually works. I don't know how it combines with human responsibility, which I think is very much a biblical thing as well. All I know is what Clayton Kershaw says there, that Christ is the foundation of my life. He is my identity, and I don't find my identity in sports. I don't find my identity in being a pastor. I don't find my identity in being a good person because I know the wickedness that is in my heart. I find my identity in Christ Jesus alone. He is the foundation of my life. He is my, he is my great shepherd and I am one of his sheep. So how about you, church? Vessel of wrath, vessel of mercy. Even today, you can move from vessel of wrath to vessel of mercy by putting your faith in Christ Jesus. If you haven't done that before, do that today. Do that now. Let's bow in a word of prayer together.